What I want to know is what's going on. I think it's time to blow this thing, get everybody in the stuff together. Okay, three, two, one, let's jam. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We've got a great show for you tonight. Let's get right to it. All right, welcome to the Big Electron here on KCOU 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening on this lovely weekend that we had here in Colombia. It was a gorgeous weekend. It was a very nice weekend. If you're listening to us online on KCU.FM, thanks for listening. Uh, you probably don't know what we're talking about with the nice weather, but uh, <laughs> thanks for being here with us today. We have a, we have a, a kind of, we don't have a topic show. Yeah, we're for, not- which is which is kind of cool. Yeah, this is the four of us here in studio talking uh, about whatever topics are on the agenda, which is uh, a great example of chaos theory, which is a scientific <laughs> idea. Yeah, there you go. Uh, before we get started, though, if you want to reach us here on studio, you can call us at 573-882-8262. You can also text us at that same number, or you can find us on our Facebook page where we are, The Big Electron. Madeline, Anahita, you guys have something for us? Yeah, we have this topic that I think I could spend my entire week talking about, let alone just this hour. Fortunately, we have a time limit. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Which is science communication. Yeah, so one of the things I wanted to mention is that I went to... I went to a talk uh, about a week ago um, that was about science communication. And that's, you know, a large reason of why the four of us are here today. We're all obviously interested in science communication. And a lot of the point of that is not just scientists wanting to throw science down your throat so that everyone should know these really specific facts about all these specific things. But the larger goal is to get people to understand science and math and how to make decisions on your own basically so if you see some finding in the news that looks fishy you're able to call them out on that and also you'd be able to hear a finding on the news and be able to pick up that it's fishy yeah yep for sure um so this this talk that i went to last week um was by dr dan Kahan? Kahan? Kahan. I'm not actually sure how to say his last name. I didn't, I didn't, I was late (laughs) to the seminar, but he was from Yale and he is actually a, um, he is a, he studies science communication. So it was a a little bit like meta. He's a scientist studying science communication and communicating that to us. Um, And it was, it was, uh, it was pretty cool how he, Uh, so what he's interested in is why people believe what they do about um, a lot of science-based topics. So um, a lot of science topics get in the news. So climate change, uh, global warming stuff, and or nuclear energy slash this, you know, security aspects of that and or gun violence. And so he, um, what he found was that there's a huge um, correlation between people's views on some of these topics and their political party, which doesn't seem to make sense. Like why, why would your feelings about this topic be influenced by your political party? They're really not particularly related. Um, and so he, he first found this, this finding and then wanted, wanted to figure out like why that is. And so one of the ideas that he had was, well, maybe, um, maybe people who are not very comfortable with science and maybe they don't score high on what we call numeracy or the ability to kind of manipulate numbers to figure out if a trend is like real or if it's just um, statistical noise basically. And uh, he said, well, maybe, maybe people who are not secure with their science background just defer to someone that they know and trust. So they defer to either politicians or the people that they get their news from who might be politically skewed and that those people are influencing them based on whatever, I don't know. So, so that's the hypothesis of his. That's his that was his, one of his hypotheses. Um, and so. But aren't politicians being less trusted nowadays? Oh, that's probably a good point, yeah. I don't know. I would, I, I I would mean, guess so. Yeah, but, but he's looking at the science point and, and they, they have kind of a greater voice than many other people do. Yeah, I would kind of argue about the, are politicians trusted? <clears throat> I guess they're, 
there is a fundamental distrust that humans mm-hmm. have of, I don't know, the establishment. And politicians are seen as part of the establishment. But I think that, you know, um, when it when it comes to things like science, what the, which growing up people are told is hard, is difficult. Mm-hmm. And so that they're just like, oh, well, it's beyond me, so I can't yeah. get it. But politicians are somebody who's in the public figure. They see them, they're... And hopefully they're they're advised by people who understand science. You know, you like to think that on their cabinet or on their whatever advisory board, there's the people who know what's going on. So, so yeah, while you say politicians aren't trusted, I think that in topics that humans are trained to think that they don't know, Mm -hmm. then they'll trust a public figure like a politician's Mm -hmm. opinion. Because it's more relatable. It's more relatable. And I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm just saying that's what's happening. That's what happens. Quick off-topic interjection related to what you're saying there, uh, Anahita, which is that um, I think all of us could verify science is not beyond you, whoever you happen to be right now. Uh, None of us are like natural-born geniuses or anything like that. Sorry if any of the three of you are, and I'm bad-mouthing. That would make grad school so much easier. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Uh, This stuff is totally within your yeah. within your reach or the four of us wouldn't yeah. be able to do it any Very better true. than anyone else. So. Yep. Nope. Um, it's, it's just, it's just like anything it else. Way, yeah. You know, it's a step-by-step so. thing. Yeah. You can go through the steps. Science yeah. STEM is accessible. Mm-hmm. Yes. It may not be easy right off the bat, but you can do it. It's yep. accessible. Yeah, it is. Okay. So, and, and, and if you're just, one last thing, if you're <laughs> really excited about learning, if you're very curious, this is the way to go. Yeah. I mean, granted, you can figure out other things with other majors, but sure. STEM allows you to do that and, and discover new things all the time. Absolutely. Okay, okay, going back. So this guy, you know, he doesn't make any arguments as to why uh-huh. people are trusting the politicians or the whoever. Um, but what he did find is that so if if it was the case that people who it's mostly the people who are unsure about their scientific skills that are. Um, relying on their political party and those beliefs, then you would think that as people get better at science and math, that they would be less susceptible to this kind of peer pressure and that they would be able to look at the data and say, no, I disagree. You know, even though that's what everyone thinks, I disagree. And they would kind of be less polar Mm -hmm. um, on any of these topics. And so he tested that idea and it turns out, nope, they are more polar, (laughs) much more polar. Yeah. Wow. And so um, he he made several other points, but the the gist of it was that people really like to be in groups. They like to belong to something, be a member of something, mm-hmm. and we really don't like going against the group. And so uh, people primarily make their decisions based on their groups, you know, whether that's political party or age group or income, mm-hmm. you know, whatever group you belong to you're going to go with them. And then it's just the people who are better at science and math, they get even more skewed because they look at this evidence and they kind of ignore the stuff that doesn't Mm -hmm. agree with them and then cling very strongly to the bits of evidence that support their belief. And so it's a classic case. I understand a lot of the arguments I've had. (laughs) Yeah, I know. When I learned this, I was like, oh, so many people make sense now. Yeah. Um, But yeah, it was really fascinating. We're just... Everyone's pretty good at confirmation bias, mm-hmm. which is just, you know, looking for evidence about things that you already know. Um, and so I just thought that was really important when we're talking about mm-hmm. science communication, that it's, it's, good to, um, it's good to educate people on how to be better at science, but also we need to know that as we get better at science, we are even more susceptible to this. <laughs> and so I would, I would argue that it's important to kind of keep yourself in check and, uh, be aware that, you know, I could be falling to something that's not actually the truth. Yeah. It's, it's unfortunate that people would put uh, people, including us, unfortunately, I'm sure it would put, you know, scientific concepts, which are supposed to be objective into this, you know, bin of things that I can, you know, alter. Yeah. uh, Based on what side I go with, but it it seems like we, we can do that. And so it doesn't have to be that way. So I've, I've kind of noticed myself doing this. Um, and actually this will relate to next week is rare disease. There's a rare disease day and I study rare diseases and I think a lot about genetics and everything. And, uh, I find myself 
thinking about genetic counseling and everything and being like, no, like it probably wouldn't, nothing would happen to me. Mm -hmm. And so based on my scientific knowledge, I go through, well, I have a big family. None of them have genetic diseases. My mom has a ton of brothers, so I probably don't have anything that's X-linked. And like, so (laughs) here, here I am using my genetic background to like convince myself that I'm less susceptible to these things, even though it's it's in a, thoroughly a shot in the dark. Way. Exactly. <laughs> and so, yeah, I need to keep myself in check. So it's kind of interesting that you bring up this group idea um, and how humans want to be in a group. Last week, I wasn't on the show because I went to a conference for the American Association for the Advancement of Science, or AAAS, which is the world's largest scientific society. Um, And just as real quick uh, to loop this all together, one of their main goals, actually it's their first listed broad goal, is to enhance communication amongst scientists, engineers, and the general public. Okay. So a lot of the conferences, or a lot of the panels were about science communication and a lot of these issues that are very polarizing. And um, one of the, the strong points that I took away from it is if you are talking to someone who has a polar opposite idea of you. Mm-hmm. The idea of saying like us versus them yes. is not the way to bridge the gap because everybody does want to be a part of the group. Mm-hmm. And if you and make you groups, down. then you're in the other group. Uh-huh. And if they think they're in the majority, then that's even better because mm-hmm. nobody wants to be in the loner group. Yeah. Everyone wants to be in the big oh, group. Because probably, yeah. <laughs> probably the big group is the right group, right? Yeah. That's, that's, that's the, the idea. Uh-huh. But it was actually a really cool conference. Um, some of, one of the panels I went to was uh, called War on Science, question mark. And okay. the point of the panel was to discuss um, these hot hot button issues, um, GMOs, vaccinations, and climate change, and discuss if there actually is a war on science going on. Mm-hmm. So they had specialists from those three fields talk, and then they had a discussion at the end, decide, is there a war on science? What they decide? Well, <laughs> let me go through <laughs> a couple of things first. I guess it's probably hard to summarize in two minutes. Yeah, that's true. Um, So for just a couple of the interesting facts that came up was, um, I guess, talking about GMOs first. Uh, There's a general, one of the the problems with the public accepting GMOs Mm -hmm. is there's some distrust that the public has for companies that are making GMOs like Monsanto. Monsanto is evil to a a Mm a lot of the public. And it's, and it's this, just two hours away from us. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I see a lot of good for Monsanto. They yeah. donate a lot of money to the university. Sure. I see that we have a large population on this planet and it would be really hard to sustain that without yep. GMOs. GMOs, yeah. And I mean, things like corn and watermelons are <laughs> genetically yeah, modified. we've already been tinkering. Yeah, for a long time now. So, um, yeah. So <laughs> these this general distrust, this public distrust of the company is what is uh, bringing up the distrust of the product. Okay. The idea that Monsanto or other biotech companies are profiting off of GMOs means they must be evil. Mm-hmm. And that all of the benefits are probably just a lie. Yeah, and I mean, that is something you have to keep your eye on. Mm-hmm. Anytime there's research funded by a, a company that has an interest, you should definitely be suspicious, but in this case, we're not necessarily, I think people are probably extending that idea mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of this research is done by independent people who really don't care Absolutely. about um, necessarily the profits that anyone else is making. You know, they're in it because they're, like scientists. You, they, they're scientists, they believe in it. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they have found it worthy of their time. So, And some of the arguments for the GMOs that it's okay, um, and this is hard to communicate, and this is kind of the challenge that scientists have to work with, is that it's okay for a company to profit off of GMOs. Mm-hmm. Orange juice is an example. Really? Um, citrus greening is a disease that threatens um, the orange crop. So okay. pretty soon we won't have orange juice unless we start genetically really? modifying the oranges oh, that's so to sad. be resistant to this citrus Isn't greening. Isn't it bananas also? Bananas, bananas also. are Bananas are at, risk. at least the ones that we are currently eating are at risk. Huh. Also um, potatoes. If we don't have bananas and orange juice, I will revolt. <laughs> but it's I so, think many people, but yeah. then you introduce a new generation of bananas or a new generation yeah. of yes. whatever, uh, and this is GMOs, but when you first talk about it now, it's it tells 
people, oh my gosh, that's that's the worst thing ever. I'm going to stop drinking orange juice yeah. and mm-hmm. eating bananas when and, it's and not the case. You said, Jackie, that there'll be a new generation of bananas. Mm-hmm. It's actually really important to think about that because this uh, distrust of GMOs means that research money won't go to GMOs. Mm-hmm. If the public is voting against GMOs mm-hmm. in whatever way that trickles down, then funding will not go to GMOs and we won't have the research to back up making a new banana. And or, you know, if there are bad things with the GMOs, you wouldn't even have research to say that, you know, it's it's something that needs to be studied thoroughly and that's what people are doing, Mm -hmm. but you, you have to keep trying basically. I would, I would um, throw out there that, yeah, it's important to distinguish between um, arguments uh, regarding GMOs that are, um, that are legitimate ones and, and the ones that are frankly not, uh, which go like against plants. <laughs> yeah, that kind of thing. I um, mean, okay. cause at this point there's pretty good evidence, uh, that GMO crops are not any more dangerous to eat than non GMO crops. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot of, if you go on internet, <laughs> the internet, there it is. You'll easily just type in GMOs and you'll find all sorts of arguments being made um, based on really questionable, you know, and in some cases fraudulent studies saying mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. no GMOs, if you eat GMO corn, you're going to turn into a popcorn kernel and, mm-hmm. and die or something yeah. like that. And, and that stuff is generally not legitimate. There are arguments that you could make, though, which don't go down that sort of anti-scientific path about, yeah. say, farming practices uh, or... Uh, in terms of what's the best practice economically, whether it is acceptable or not to uh, have private ownership of such concepts. These are like with, you know, Monsanto and other large companies Mm -hmm. having such a a big role in the process. Um, I'm not personally trying to even state my opinion. In fact, I'm avoiding talking about it. Um, (laughs) But there are arguments that can be made in either side of Mm -hmm. those issues without delving into... Well, it's evil. It's evil. They're mm-hmm. going to yeah. they're going to kill us because that part is something that science can talk about and yep. it sort of allows there to be a more objective, as objective as we can get, a baseline of facts that we could all work with and agree. And then from there, we're still going to have plenty of difference of opinion. Mm-hmm. We don't really need to get into anti scientific stuff. To yeah, yeah. And scientists are generally very skeptic. Yeah, that is mm-hmm. something that you get to remember. And so when when you see something, you're like, mm, well, let's see, let's. And if you happen to work in the same field, then you can look at the opposite. But that's when it trickles down to okay, we said like this little thing that was negative, but then you know the media and then uh, public figures and mm-hmm. then politicians and you know it just they just made it a big bigger deal than mm-hmm. it was. And they're like, no, we just like said this small thing, but now when we have this miscommunication of of what the result was, then it's like, oh my gosh, GMOs are evil, mm-hmm. vaccines are bad, climate change is not happening, and so on and so forth. Okay, so relating these last two ideas, so if we can't you know, necessarily trust our political party because we're too polarized, you know, we're too susceptible to that, and we can't trust the pharmaceutical companies and everything, so... What do you think? Where? What are we supposed to do? Who are we supposed to trust? Science. Yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, again, a lot easier for us as scientists. And I could kind of do that in my field. But mm-hmm. even as a broader mm-hmm. science, you know, if if there's things about, you know, I can't interpret necessarily the climate change data. Um, so yeah. what? I guess you just go with the National Academy, stuff like that. <laughs> Places where there's a, a large group of very well-respected scientists and see if they have a consensus. I guess so. I guess that's I what guess you gotta that's do. That's what you have to do. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know that one. Yeah. <laughs> so so what else was, was on this panel, Anahita? Um, so vaccines was the next thing uh-huh. we discussed. And this was a shocking statistic to me. Um, so the problem with the vaccines I guess, are that people are choosing not to vaccinate their children. Um, So the number of inoculations since 1983 has grown from eight to 35. Mm, Okay. And this has been a large, it's uh, been credited as a large source of the reason that parents don't want to vaccinate their kids. It's like, Mm. you have to bring your kid in, I think it was six times to get 35 Mm -hmm, inoculations. mm -hmm. And that just seemed like flooding the body. Yeah. 
with drugs. Yeah. And so there's this, again, this innate distrust of big companies. Mm -hmm. And so for vaccines, it was pharmaceutical companies that these vaccines aren't actually vaccinating. Yeah. That it's just, you know, a way to flood our bodies with stuff. Mm -hmm. Just dump a bunch of vaccines in the kid Mm -hmm. and hope they survive. Yeah, I don't know. And then you have public figures like, uh, who's this actress talking about autism? Yeah, McCarthy, McCarthy, yeah. Yeah. And then, and then, uh, I don't know if you guys saw recently, uh, Mark Zuckerberg. And he posted, but he posted a photo of um, him going to the doctor with his daughter. And he just, I think the caption of the picture was vaccine time or something like that. Mm -hmm. And that just like released, unleash another, yeah, yeah. Well, Hmm. so uh, when they opened this vaccine section of the panel, they started with a clip of a recent Republican debate where Donald Trump said some incorrect fact about vaccines having to do with autism, Mm -hmm. which has been disproven time and time and time (laughs) again. Vaccines do not cause autism. And it's a funny, you know, we're talking about a conflict of interest. Like that whole thing started because this guy had a different vaccine that, you know, he would profit off of. Absolutely. And so he was trying to debunk the current, was it MMR? I think um, one of the vaccines. One of those. This is the British researcher. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Got his license I didn't revoked. Know he had his own motivation yeah. for that. Yeah, I yeah. Never read. Yeah, that. That, so. that was the whole reason. So Donald Trump says, you know, vaccines cause autism, and then immediately after that, they cut to another topic. Oh. So this was said in a public debate, mm-hmm. in a largely televised debate, like undisputed. Oh no! Nobody got to say, well, that's not true. Yeah, they yeah. just moved on. And so it's uh, a way that Mm -hmm. incorrect science is being communicated. There's an entire party that just heard a false, a myth, Uh undebunked. Mm -hmm. But here's here's one sort of um, hopeful fact that comes to my mind as you you point that out. The vaccine issue, for example, is not one that is strictly polarized yet. Yeah, no. Yet, and hopefully ever. That and there's there's no scientific basis for the anti-vaccine mm-hmm. movement. Mm-hmm. Um, so, on that particular front, in theory, you should be able to look at, regardless of which party you're in, sure. you should be able to find people in your own party of your own opinions on other issues that will agree that yeah, you should probably have your children vaccinated. Mm-hmm. So that is. Um, that's one area when we can all sort of just look at, okay, who within my group is supporting this and who is against it. Mm -hmm. You can do that with certain issues if they haven't gotten too badly, you know, set one side or the other yet. So So, uh, then the last topic mm -hmm. we went over was climate change. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) We've heard a lot about that one. (laughs) Yes, we have. So um, for climate change, there were a a lot of things I heard Um, at the conference. And so one of the things that I shared earlier with you guys, but not on the radio that I'll share now, Mm -hmm. was that 7%, so most people get their climate science or what they consider climate science from meteorologists, like on TV. Yeah, friendly face. Yeah, it's like your local guy. Your weather person. Yeah. Unfortunately, only 7% of meteorologists are actually on TV. Okay, that seems reasonable. You need a lot of backup, you know, behind the scenes people. But most of those public faces that the public trusts um, do not believe that climate change is happening. Mm. So if most what? of the people <laughs> that you think are, are the trusted source in weather and climate don't believe in climate change, then why would you? Yeah. However, that's not, um, that's not reflective of the field. The field, the majority sure. of the field believes that climate change or knows that climate change is happening sure. and... Yeah, so that's that's a worrisome thing that I heard. Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's mm. that's okay. <laughs> so, so anyway, so to answer what, your yeah. earlier question, they decided that there was not a war on science. Okay. Because <laughs> a war on science would mean one uniform front against science. Okay. And if you look at these three cases, there's different groups of people with different motivations. Just kind of picking at science rather than (laughs) declaring war. Right. (laughs) So there's no war on science, according to this panel. But there sure is a war on 
parts of science. Parts of science. <laughs> yeah. Communication, so, certain I guess communication battles science. of science is yeah. what we should call it. Yeah. So I guess. step back, regardless if you're a Democrat or Republican or a Federalist or a Whig, uh, <laughs> those are still parties, right? Um, um, yeah, step back, look at it scientifically. Yeah. Don't, mm -hmm. uh, don't, don't just... Don't fall for the tricks. Yeah. Don't... Uh, <laughs> It's not true or not true just because somebody you voted for said so. Yeah. Regardless. But as Madeline said, and so did Anahita, that people that they trust are where we get our facts about mm -hmm. science or whatever. It's they come from a familiar face or yeah. politicians or mm -hmm. weather person at, stuff. At some point, and there I was. Heard, oh, sorry. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was gonna move on, but <laughs> yeah, move on. <laughs> We've we could go all day. Long <laughs> so, so speaking of, speaking of of trusting faces. Um, there's a study that came out out of Stanford University this week in collaboration with uh, a whole bunch of other universities in, um, in, in Asia. And they came out with this really, um, this, this, this topic of, they studied politicians and they looked at their pictures. Okay, so when you look at pictures, you're like, oh, okay, I guess I can trust this person or not. I cannot trust this person, so I will or will not vote for mm -hmm. this person. And they found out that the more a nation, a nation values excitement, the bigger its politicians smile. Wow. Wow. How do so you measure the value of excitement? <laughs> How do you measure the, like area yeah. of the smile. <laughs> Sounds like calculus. So, so, they, looked, so they looked at uh, cultures, right? And so Americans uh, here in the United States, they value, you know, uh, being, you know, friendly to each other. Um, but if you look at East Asian countries like China and Taiwan, there are much more, uh, you know, let, like it's modest. Mm -hmm. They call it modest, like sure. not, not as touchy as, as we uh -huh. maybe. Um, and so they, they looked at, at pictures of politicians, like the top people hmm. in, in the country. And they also looked at, um, they looked at that and they looked at, for example, like CEOs and university presidents and in their, um, and, and government leaders. Um, so they looked at people that are on the top levels mm -hmm. of whatever. Uh, in their official photos. And so they, they looked at that. They also looked in the second study, they compared the smiles between winning versus losing politi politicians um, <laughs> and higher versus lower ranking CEOs and university presidents. Hmm. Hmm. And this was uh, the United States, Taiwan, and China. And in both studies, uh, it shows that Americans had more excited smiles than other leaders, regardless of the election outcome or ranking. Okay. So it, our elections are not just smiling contests. No, that's, no, no, no. That's probably good. Yeah. <laughs> no, but compared to other countries, we are we we value that more. Well, hmm. I, I wonder if the study considered body language in various countries. Yeah. Because I know in Japan, a smile mm -hmm. communicates embarrassment. Oh, so if a politician's smiling, then they yeah. have a lot to be embarrassed. Yeah. and that's and that's kind of what they were looking at also. And a third study. Uh, they involved uh, self-reported measures of ideal effect among college students from 10 different nations. And then they coded that eight years later, they coded that smiles that legislators from those nations showed in their official photos. And they found then that the more the nations valued excitement in other positive emotional states, mm -hmm. the more their leaders showed excited smiles. And the more the nations value calm in other low positive states, the more their leaders showed calm smiles. So like not big and green, mm. like mm -hmm. showing your teeth, but the you know, more, more relaxed. Picture where he's like got a massive mm -hmm. smile the size yeah. of his face, basically. <laughs> yeah. So. And, and they still looked at positive emotions, positive states of emotions. Uh, they call it high arousal was like when you feel good and energizing and the low positive was uh, good and soothing. Um, so they said that their results were hell across all occupations, like regardless of politicians, still CEOs and presidents of universities. Wow. They still, in America, was like big and green and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all the big smile. And then on the other ones, it was like, eh. Hmm. It, I wonder, it wasn't as, as, as 
different. I wonder what these other countries think of like Tom Cruise on Oprah jumping <laughs> on the couch and like being, if they're just like, what is wrong with yeah. America? Probably. <laughs> yeah. I, I read an article in National Geographic a few months ago about, um, about Saudi Arabia. Uh-huh. And it was uh, an article about women in that country. And the, the interviewee in one of the sections was talking about her favorite uh, Western film, which is Titanic. And um, the interviewer, an American woman, pointed out that that movie is pretty scandalous by the standards of that country. Yeah. I'm sure if you've seen Absolutely. it, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and so she asked the woman, "Is like, well, what about the, you know, scandalous parts of this? And she said, oh, that's just their culture. Oh, oh. funny. Yeah. Okay. Weird to be on the receiving end of that, isn't huh. it? So, yeah. Um, yeah, probably they just, they just say, oh, Tom Cruise is just being, he's just American. He's just American. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, and that's how, how people then expect it when they come yeah. to America or when they interact with someone. So, um, yeah, they, they found that, that stuff. Pretty interesting. Yeah. Pretty interesting. All right. With that, we're going to go on our first musical break. You're listening to the big electron on KCOU Columbia 88.1 FM. All right, welcome back to the Big Electron here on KCU 88.1 FM. I love that. That was it amazing. Was so cute. <laughs> I can't See, help but dance to it. <laughs> the NSF, the National Science Foundation, is uh, one of the two main ones that provide funding for uh, public funding for sure. research. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's very appropriate for us to play it. <laughs> and catchy. Uh-huh. And catchy. Real quick before we move on, I want to say good luck to Lauren Radford tomorrow. She's doing a big uh, defense talk. Mm. All right, there you go. Our fellow soon-to-be PhD. Yeah. <laughs> colleague. She's doing right. a little proposal thing. Anyway. Yeah. Science. Adam. <laughs> yes, hello. Oh, I'm going. Okay. I think um, you are. <laughs> <laughs> apparently, I'm talking about science right now. Um, so last week, if you tuned in, you may have heard us uh, dedicate a pretty good chunk of the hour to a really amazing uh, physics discovery of the last few weeks, which was just recently announced, um, and it was from a, um, it was about gravitational waves, the the actual detection of gravity waves um, with actual devices, so that we've turned our theoretical belief that this stuff exists so many into theories. a literal one. Yeah. So we've, people have believed for, you know, a hundred years or so since Einstein came out with the general relativity theory that if you had big enough objects in space circling around each other fast enough, it would produce waves of gravity. And we had never detected this before because it's really hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now we have because we're really smart. Um, we? Well, well I, there's I some people. We personally, we four in this room right now. I, and they were detected via the LIGO? Yes, yes, that's right. LIGO or LIGO or however you want to abbreviate it. L-I-G-O is... <laughs> kind of like LEGO, is, but... It's it's mm-hmm. a giant LEGO set in space. Uh, <laughs> well, it's lasers. But it's but like off-brand because it's giant, spelled wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's an off-brand Lego set that we've launched into space, which uh, sends lasers to each other. These are several satellites that send lasers to each other across a great distance. And then if a gravity wave uh, comes at us, then these things will be uh, further apart or closer together very briefly. And the time it takes the laser to get from one to the other changes Mm -hmm. in a way that is detectable to these satellites. So just a few weeks ago... um, we collectively, meaning the human race, not us in this room, um, found out that, yes, we can actually see and prove the existence of gravity waves. Well, here's a a thought experiment for you. Um, If you've taken physics in high school or college, then you may be aware that light has is occurs in waves, but it also occurs as particles, Mm -hmm. as photons. So you can have, depending on how you measure it, you can find certain phenomena about light will be like a wave, like, you know, uh, just identical to a water wave and the math uh, behind it and how the the different waves distribute themselves. But you can also see examples where it's like uh, a particle or a photon, where Mm -hmm. like if you heat a certain metal with a certain wavelength of light, a different wavelength of light will bounce off of it in a a way that matches the way a particle would work. and that's a, like a little a photon. packet of energy yeah, rather a packet than of energy a continuous. Exactly. So you've got 
this duality there, and that's what they usually call it, is a duality. You've got a, the same stuff, light, has a wave nature and a particle nature, mm -hmm. which is really cool. Wouldn't you assume that gravity has that too? I guess, but also, I, I have mean, no idea. <laughs> I I feel like there are... No, but apparently... Is this yeah. a trick question? Yes, <laughs> it is a trick question. They They assume that it does, but we've never seen it. We've never seen anything about gravity other than its effects until now. Hmm. Now we've seen the waves, but we've never seen the particles even still. Oh. And uh, there's a um, there's some lengthy discussion about so out there <laughs> about trying to find particles, wow. the particle version hmm. of this. This is kind of the opposite of the way it was with uh, electromagnetic waves or light. Used to be they found particles first and then they figured out the wave part. Huh. So. No. We're like mind blown yeah. over here. Oh, We're struggling sure what here. Just, what like that a, gesture was that I was a saying. A particle like, is like a, it's a physical it's a thing. thing. So if yes. could you move the particle and then have less gravity? Who knows? Like, ah, this but, is, but it's crazy this, because you you think of gravity as like this force that it's, it's a it's force. It's constant. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. a constant. Well, not necessarily. Well, but our eyes detect light as a constant too. Right, right. So, but you can maybe maybe it's, maybe it's with yeah. the truth. <laughs> <laughs> so, maybe it's just our perception. I don't know. So oh that's the God. thing. But these hypothetical, and right now it's still hypothetical. The particles of gravity are called gravitons. Cool. Of course. And, that, yeah. Honestly, that sounds way cooler so cool. than gravitational waves. I'm really excited yeah. if and when they figure that one out. Well, and the good news is it is theoretically possible that we could someday develop the technology to see gravitons. Uh, here's the problem. They're really, really small. Mm -hmm. So well, if yeah. we were able to actually see them, it would take uh, quite a bit of investment in some fancy tools that right now, at least at present, would be really expensive and mm -hmm. that we're not likely to be able to get the funding for because that would cost bazillions of dollars. Mm -hmm. Bazillions is probably not a real word, but I just said it. It's probably the accurate term, though. Yeah, it would cost bazillions Many, of many, many. Fun fact dollars. about bazillions of dollars, the NSF, or the Nat National Science Foundation, began funding the search for gravitational waves in the 1970s. Wow. And have since then invested approximately $1.1 billion. Wow. Wow. But at the same time, eh, that's like drops in a bucket <laughs> compared to some people. So considering how much the U.S. military spent in 2015, which was $600 billion, wow. not very much. Yeah. <laughs> we could have done this a long time. 70s, if, we can find, if we can find gravitons and just throw another billion at it, I say we go for yeah, it. That's yeah. Just my yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, I'm not one to tell the government how to spend it. <laughs> um, I am. Okay. Give it to yeah, me. Yeah, I, I am too. I'm lying about that. Um, but um, I am saying... Find gravitons. Good luck. Mm -hmm. uh, the search is on. So meanwhile, may the force be with you. Yeah, exactly. May the gravitational, <laughs> the gravitational force, force be with you. <laughs> um, it has to be gravitational now. Yeah, exactly. It's the what's it called? The beam that pulls them in. The, the what? tractor beam. The yeah. tractor. Well, I don't know. That's the Star Trek term. It is. Uh, I don't know if that's in Star Wars or not. I know Star Trek better than yeah. Star Wars. I don't know. Man, I should know this. <laughs> um, but in the meanwhile, since we can't yet. Um, detect gravitons, but there is hope, but we can't yet detect gravitons. Um, we're going to keep on looking at light because that's, um, there's still plenty of good stuff left cool. there. So uh, in the meanwhile, NASA has announced that it is officially uh, preparing its next super satellite telescope thing called WFIRST, which is a clever abbreviation for Wide Field Infrared Survey Telescope. Mm. I'm pretty sure they just gave it that long name just so they could call it WFIRST. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's a, a light microscope. It will be space-based, like the Hubble, okay. but and it sees with the same level of detail as Hubble, but on a wider field, so you can see a wider section of the sky at once. So hmm. that is um, under under development. It will probably be launched sometime in the mid 2020s, according to their estimates. Um, and it's estimated to cost more than two billion dollars. Uh, All right, of of going time. big with the funding. <laughs> yeah. So. You know, throw another few billion at it, find gravitons, and we'll all be happy. So. Yeah, sounds pretty And cool. speaking of NASA, their applications for astronauts closed this week. I um, saw that they got over uh, eighteen thousand, wow, three hundred applicants, hmm. and they have eight to fourteen open slots. <laughs> wow. Wow. You thought the job the job market was like, <laughs> That actually sounds like the entire job market. 
<laughs> so who knows? Maybe maybe it's one of these hopefuls that that yeah. will that will get the telescope up there and and stuff like that. Good yeah. luck. Yeah. Yay. Let's huh. hope so. All right. <laughs> cool. Well, I think I'm up next. Um, and one interesting article I found this week is about tumors, tumors and cancer, and everyone hates these things. Um, and basically what this study found is that once again, surprise, surprise, exercise is good for us. I don't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> Me at 8 a.m. trying to convince myself to go to the gym doesn't believe it either. <laughs> um, but anyway, so I guess there's been an increasing amount of evidence that suggests that um, exercise might have an effect on cancer and or tumors. So there will be cancer patients who, those who exercise tend to go into, um, they, their cancer comes back less often. Um, and there's just been kind of an increasing amount of evidence that shows things like that, but they weren't really sure what the mechanism behind this effect was, whether it was um, just overall body composition or whether there was hormones that were making a difference or systemic inflammation. Um, and so some of the things that they have known that have been a little bit um, kind of contradictory is that, so there's, um, so exercise is in general good, but inflammation is bad. Mm -hmm. Inflammation leads to more cancer and tumors and everything, sure. but mm -hmm. exercise induces inflammation. And uh -oh. so, uh, yeah, paradox. yeah, how does that work? Um, but part of it, um, th what they're arguing is that um, it's, it's a burst. When you exercise, it's a burst of inflammation and then you recover. And apparently that is the part that they believe um, is beneficial in, in this cancer context. So they, had, they have these rats that uh, are very t prone to getting tumors and they gave some of them a running wheel. And the ones that decided to run, like they didn't force them to run anything, they just put it in there. And the ones that ran more um, had significant decreases in the, the tumors that they acquired. So hmm. on the order of like 50% smaller tumors, wow. um, fewer tumors, uh, a number of different measures that um, were, I don't know, pretty cool. That's big numbers. Yeah, it is big. Um, so exercise more. As if, <laughs> as if uh, you That's know. not what I want to hear. <laughs> as if there's not enough evidence that says you should probably exercise more. See, all the evidence And eat says, well. Yeah. And eat healthy. And the yada, don't yada. stress. And Madeline. That one, that one article about chocolate was the one we wanted to hear, right? And yeah. it turns out that that was totally bunk. Oh. And just, it was just this guy making it up to see if he could get it accepted. And he did. <laughs> <laughs> Which but is that's a, whole a story for another day. Exactly. It's a very long story. I have a real quick cancer story that actually is kind of a sad one, so maybe I shouldn't tell it. But the naked mole rat was mm -hmm. thought to be cancer-free, right? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So recently, two naked mole rats uh, got cancer huh. that were being studied, I guess. Two naked mole rats that were being studied got cancer. And so it's like researchers are in a tizzy because they were like, no, the naked mole rat had the key to uh -huh. no cancer. And so that's interesting. Well, so were they, I mean, you can learn a great deal from that. I mean, that's if, true. The difference between this one oh, that got yeah. cancer and its brother that didn't, that would be a big yeah. deal. Yeah. What, I mean, if we thought these guys were impervious to cancer, sorry, I, I'm all excited. <laughs> so it just it makes me a terrible mole, mole rat actually. Um, <laughs> but I mean, yeah. What, if the, if we thought these guys were impervious to it, what made these susceptible? Yeah, what's the mm -hmm. difference, or what? what well, what's kind of funny provoke? about it is yeah. uh, one of the naked mole rats. It was in pretty much his armpit, and so they like cut out the tumor, and they like sent it off to be studied. And like three months later, they saw that there was no remnants of the cancer. So it's the first known um, uh -huh. naked mole rat cancer survivor. <laughs> Which I think is really cute. Wait, but they gave him treatment or no? They just no, they, they just, just cut, cut it the out. They just cut it out. Wow, oh. that's pretty impressive. And yeah. it was a malignant tumor. Wow, like it wasn't just like a lump. We'll have to follow up on that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm pretty excited too. That's neat. That's interesting. 
Yeah, I remember when I saw that the naked mole rat genome was sequenced, I was like, why is this a priority? <laughs> <laughs> and then I looked into it and I was like, no, oh, that's know. a pretty good reason. <laughs> this is one fair. of those situations when it's not obvious to people outside the field why you would study such yep. a thing. And if you just saw the headline of that, you'd be just like, why is our money going to this? Oh, yeah. yeah, I can see a lot of angry but, people about like, this is what science is doing. Uh -huh. <laughs> But yeah, looking beneath the surface level, mm -hmm. it's it's very important to figure mm -hmm. out why that is. Uh, yeah, and I think I think a lot of people who study aging also study the naked mole rat for that reason. Um, I believe molecularly they have oh, I don't remember what, but um, yeah, extended telomeres. I, 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 I don't remember telomeres or other maybe, stuff? but it, yep. it might have also had yeah. to do with its. Um, oncogenes, so oh, the genes that um, either cause cancer or like the ones that prevent cancer from happening. So if you have a cell that's growing out of control, the, the cell has a so mechanism to kill itself. Right. It's a um, molecular chaperone protein known as HSP25. That's what makes them apparently different. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, Good for them. They're, <laughs> they're apparently very important for a bunch of scientific studies. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad they're sequenced. How long can they live? I don't remember. I guess I guess the internet will tell me someday. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, and, and man, speak up to 31 years. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> That's a lot. Never get one as a pet. That's yeah. way too long of a commitment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And speaking of speaking of sequencing, mm -hmm. um, it was recently published about so one of the reasons <clears throat> so when when we accomplish when humans accomplished. <laughs> not, not we in this room, right. <laughs> uh, human genome sequencing, you know, it was, it was a big deal and, and, and it has, ever since it has allowed for many other uh, things to happen. So the next thing was, okay, can we sequence a gene of a virus? Can we sequence a gene mm. of a bacteria, of things that affect us humans and then we can find a way to kill them mm -hmm. um, or treat them or whatever so unfortunately it's it's kind of it, it used to be really hard and as science has progressed as technology has progressed it has become more and more feasible to sequence things um, it still you know requires equipment and things like that but um, it's it's becoming more and more feasible and one of the ways that they're accomplishing this is by using nanotechnology mm -hmm. And they do this by using more specifically what they call nanopores. And that is... Um, They're on your face, right? <laughs> <laughs> actually, really yeah, actually, I, yeah, actually kind of, they kind of work the, the same way. Uh, oh. They allowed the sequence to, to come in and then, you know, certain parts can come in, others cannot. Mm. And then from there on, then they can um, have the sequence of, of a virus or whatever. Hmm. Now, it was still kind of bad as in you wouldn't get the whole sequence and then you would get errors and you would get this and that or whatever. And this, pub this was published, I believe, about 10 years ago. This is when they started doing it. But they published now that they have become much better at it. And that is because they introduced some tagging. They call them mm -hmm. tagging, tagging the DNA. Mm -hmm. And that allows for, for that to, um, to be like better sequence and, mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And so... The really cool thing that that happened and, and that they know it it's working and they are really pushing for it is last year when we had the Ebola crisis outbreak, outbreak yeah. they sent a whole bunch of these. Uh, they're really small and they, they have a picture of this and they're like about the size of your hand. Um, and they send them over to to Africa. These little sequencers? Mm -hmm. cool. These little sequencers. And what they did is the doctors took um, <clears throat> tissue from patients who were Ebola positive mm -hmm. and then they sequenced the, oh. the virus right uh, there and there. Yeah. Wow. And then you could watch it uh, change. It evolve. Yeah. yeah pretty That's much. Awesome. Yeah. That's so cool. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And so they were like doing oh it spot on and they were sequencing exactly as you know the patient was being diagnosed that it was positive they would take out some stuff um sequence it and then that's what and then that helped um huh, so they were awesome. hoping that that will help for for a vaccine Developing. or or a treatment yeah. for it wow well that's really that's cool right right yeah. <laughs> so yeah. so that was yeah that was that was really cool and they're, they're working on it and it seems that it'll be very feasible very yeah. soon 
while we're talking about testing things, I have a quick last story. Um, so recently, a new technique for checking blood has been uh, developed. So this Just checking is, whether it's there? <laughs> excellent question. <laughs> no, <laughs> um, no it's, it's blood that's been donated oh, okay. and checking it before transfusion. Awesome. So traditionally, um, the way, so to check blood, you donate blood and it comes in a, it's stored in a bag. Mm -hmm. So to check it, you'd have to open the bag in some manner mm -hmm. and take out some of the blood or check it while it's in the bag. But that process of opening it is uh, opening the blood to contamination. Mm -hmm. So to counter that contamination, doctors tend to not open the bag or test it until just before a transfusion. Mm -hmm. So the problem with that is that we kind of have this idea of how long blood can last, but different blood, I don't know, degrades at different rates. Okay. So your blood might last longer than my blood. Um, and it's until just before the transfusion, we don't know. Wow. So it's kind of a risky situation. If you're in a really dire situation, that could be really bad. So this new technique using a type of spectroscopy. So spectroscopy is the study of light interacting with matter. Mm -hmm. And so Raman spectroscopy measures vibrations. So light is shot into the bag of blood and okay. the vibrations that the molecules undergo are recorded by this instrument. And um, it can go through the bag. Cool. And so you never have to open it, but you can keep track on how the blood is doing. Uh-huh. So kind of like time. kind of like when they're delivering your UPS and you you scan it and oh now it's in yep. Kansas. <laughs> exactly. Oh, it's getting close. And so it it it, this was developed by Dr. Rebecca Hopkins, um, who works in the United Kingdom as at the Deference, Sci Deference Science and Technology Laboratory. Um, and so, yeah, it's just watching the metabolic processes within the bag happening. Very cool. Yeah. So totally unrelated. Well, not unrelated. You wrote down something about ramen, something, something. And I definitely thought you were going to talk about noodles. I'm so sorry. <laughs> It's okay. I think this is cooler. Yeah. Rollins spectroscopy. Mm. Yeah. Which is what you study, right? That is what I study. Awesome. Yeah. So it's it's the vibrations of molecules. So it's okay. providing it with energy and seeing how they wiggle. Cool. Yeah. That is really neat. Yeah. It gives so like... Extremely it, concise summary of what you do. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I do. I watch things wiggle. <laughs> there you go. But and yeah, it's exciting. It's a, it's a really great technique because mm -hmm. this is going to really help speed up the process of saving lives. Mm -hmm. So a really big problem with um, emergencies, emergency surgeries and all of that is like getting the blood to the patient fast enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if they have to, if they can just speed up the process by continuously checking using mm -hmm. this technique that doesn't contaminate. There you go. Then that'll save some lives. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. All right. Well, thanks for listening. That was our show for this week. Next week, we have a really cool show, as Madeline said. Uh, it's Rare Genetic... Rare Disease Day. Rare Disease Day. Yay. Uh, and so we'll be talking... We have a guest uh, we're, we're pretty excited about, and then uh, we'll be talking a little bit more about it. Mm -hmm. So um, tune in. Make sure to tune in next week. Uh, same time, same place, either online or on your car or wherever you are. Thanks for listening.